We open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament prophet Malachi. He is the last of the minor prophets. Minor, not because the, what they say is unimportant, but because they're brief. And so if you have trouble finding Malachi, well, you can find it on the Bible that's right in front of you on page 949. But if you can find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it comes right before that. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. As a bright-eyed seminarian, I assumed my preaching would transform the church. My leadership would inspire followers. My power would spark revival. But then it's the slog of ministry begins to slow me down. So there's this nostalgia for days gone by. When biblical ethics seemed to hold sway, when weekly church attendance was a pattern, when evangelism didn't seem to provoke opposition. But I don't have to look back decades. I can just look back months to when my ministry focused on preaching and discipleship instead of mask mandates and virtual gatherings. Yet the longing for something better than the present tends to ignore my own failures. A nostalgic look backwards tends to overlook my personal sin. My preaching fails to change others because I refuse to sit under the authority of God's Word. My leadership is uninspiring when I rely on my own strength. Maybe you feel it too, how fragile the church feels, the partisan bickering, the vaccine debates, the social strife, the mask mandates. It seems the glory days have passed us by. We live in a world of financial insecurity religious skepticism, and personal disappointments. Actually, that was a quote from one of the commentators, talking not about the world in which you and I live, but the world in which Malachi ministered. The people of God had returned from exile, but the nation is weak. The capital city is in ruins. The temple is in disarray. There is selfishness bubbling to the surface. God's commands feel so distant. Obedience seems wasted. And so we need the word of the Lord. The prophet Malachi, chapter 1. An oracle the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert at Jackal's. Edom may say, though we may have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath 
of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Father, I ask that having heard your word read, your spirit would now apply it to our lives. That where we come frustrated or disappointed, you would let us hear today your word of gospel hope. Father, where we doubt the truthfulness of what you announce, that we would see with our own eyes, that we would hear with our own ears the truth of the gospel, that reading it we would understand and believe. Lord, where we are tempted to look back in nostalgic ways at the past, that you would let us not only see your faithfulness then, but your faithful promises now. That we would rest upon your, your future guarantees to us. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We know so little about the prophet Malachi that we're not even sure if that's his name. Because in Hebrew, it means my messenger. And so is it just a descriptive title or is it his personal name? Did his parents anticipate, maybe even with, with a prophetic word, that he was being raised up as a prophet? And yet there is grace, even in verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. We know nothing about his upbringing or his background, but we hear the message of hope through God's messenger. The problems in Malachi are the same problems that Ezra, the priest, and Nehemiah, the governor, faced when, when they came back after the exile. We're in the 400s BC, the 5th century before Christ. And Malachi is the last of the prophets. If you turn the page, you just get through these few chapters, which we'll spend the next six weeks looking at, and you come to the New Testament. But in the, the, the white space between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament is more than 400 years of silence. And so the people look back and, and, and wonder, has God forgotten us? The prophet begins with the words of the Lord, I have loved you, says the Lord. And yet the people have a question, a question that God puts on their lips when they ask in verse 2, how have you loved us? It's an honest question. It's a question filled with doubt, wondering, really, God? This, this is how you show your love to us? This kingdom is nothing. There's, there's almost nothing left. Even the work that was done rebuilding the temple, it, it, it feels like it was for nothing because the priests can't be trusted. God, wasn't it supposed to be better than this? Don't I deserve more than what I have here? Now, Malachi's prophecies are given to us in a question and answer format. Each of the six prophecies, and we'll look at one each week over these next six weeks, comes with an assertion from God and then a question 
from the people. And then God gives them an answer. And then he gives them a confirmation and shows them the implications of the truth of what he says. So God says, I have loved you. And the people ask, how have you loved us? And as we hear God's answer, we're going we're gonna to look this morning really at, at just two main points. When God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. We'll first look at the second part of that, the challenge of God's hatred, before we turn back to the comfort of God's love. First, the challenge of God's hatred. When they ask, how have you loved us, God points them back to the beginnings of the nation. You, you remember from the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau are twins. They are the grandsons of Abraham. Abraham, the important figure, the one to whom God said, I will bless you, I will make you great. Through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Yet it was laughable, that kind of promise, because he was an old man. His wife was old. And yet God gave them a child of the promise, Isaac. Then Isaac married Rebekah, and she gives birth to these twins, Jacob and Esau. And so God points back, and he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And the Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. See, the people of Israel, those that had returned to Jerusalem, they feel like God had forgotten them. Judah is just one of 120 provinces in the Persian Empire, and it's nowhere near the capital. It's of relative unimportance. They are, as, as one commentator says, in spiritual dis- distress. The Messiah has not yet come, and the priesthood is corrupted. Their city was destroyed. Their population decimated. And so it's clear that, that part of the answer to this question, this challenge of God's hatred, is to understand that the God speaks not merely of these two brothers, but of the nations which came from them. And we see that because in verse 4, we, we call Esau no longer by his name, but by the name of the nation which came from his descendants. In verse 4, Edom responds. When God says that, that he will turn the mountains of Esau into a wasteland and leave his inheritance to the desert jackals, then it's Edom, the, the nation which responds. Though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But God then says, they may build, but I will demolish. See, the hatred that we see here is God's response to the enemies of God's people. It is, as one commentator says, the hatred of God is his determined opposition to wickedness. Then when God sees evil, God doesn't let evil keep running rampant, that God steps in and puts a stop to evil. Because in Psalm 137, we read about the people of Edom. What the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell, they stood and cheered the Babylonian armies. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. The prophet Ezekiel, speaking at that time, says that, that it was the Edomites who delivered Israel over to the sword of its enemies at the time of its calamity. When they saw the judgment of God against his people, they mocked them. They joined in with the enemies of God. 
And so God, when he sees this evil, he steps in and says, I will put a stop to it. Whatever they try to rebuild, I will destroy. As they try and advance their evil kingdom, I'll end it. They will be a wicked people who live in what will now be called the wicked land. Verse 4 says, a people always under the wrath of God. Because God's hatred is in service of God's love. God looks at evil and says, it must stop. So we can, we can claim the biblical truth that God is love. And yet if you think that means that God just sits back with his feet up and lets evil run rampant, then you don't understand love. Because when someone that you love is under threat, the response is not indifference, but hatred of the violence that's being brought against your loved ones. It's a willingness to step in and, and bring evil to justice. And so you and I need this kind of reminder. When God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. We need the reminder when we look around us in a world that feels filled with evil. Not just the, the evil of, of nation states fighting one another, but the evil of neighbors against us. If you've been harmed by God, then you need this truth that God sees what has gone wrong and God will intervene. But the evil doesn't just lurk out there in others. The evil lurks within us. In the world in which we live, things don't work correctly because of our sin. We can rightly look at, at natural disasters and call them evil because they trace back to the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve. We can look at a world in which, which biology doesn't work the way it should, in which viruses can take over, over an entire planet and say that is evil. Not, not just something that, that's, that's frustrating, but it's actually evil, and God hates evil. And so we need God's righteous judgment for the nation. And yet that's not enough of an answer to this challenge of hatred. Because it still sounds like God is speaking about these two boys. These babies of Rebecca. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So the reality is we all, because of our sin, deserve judgment. And so when we look at the, the comfort of God's love, the most surprising part of this passage is not God's hatred. That actually should be the predictable answer. If, if you've been reading the Old Testament, by the time you get to Malachi, the fact that God hates sin should not be a surprise. He hates sin enough that he judged his own people by sending the Assyrians to carry the Israelites away from their nation, by sending the Babylonians to carry the people of Judah away for their sin. And so for God to say that he hates sin, that shouldn't be a surprise. The most surprising part of this passage is not God's hatred. Our sin makes sense of that. 
The most surprising part is God's love. It's remarkable, not that God hates Esau, but that God would love either of these brothers. And this is a picture for us of God's sovereign electing love, that God is the king who chooses to love whom he chooses, not because of anything good found in them, but merely because of his love, because of his mercy. See, Jacob is not chosen because of anything good that he had done. Actually, if that were the case, then you wouldn't have chosen Jacob. God would have said, well, Esau doesn't come off too well in these stories, but Jacob is no better. Actually, Jacob's a liar, a deceiver. He's a fool. Why would God choose him? And Jacob was chosen even before he was born. Unexpectedly, the second son born would receive the promise of God. The Apostle Paul in in the book of Romans, that great letter to the church describing the fact that we are all sinners who cannot save ourselves and yet God is rich in mercy. He actually quotes from Malachi chapter 1 to explain God's love to us. In in Romans chapter 9, in verse 11, and it might be helpful for you to flip there, this is now toward the, new te- the, the back of your Bible. So you go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then you get to Romans. We put it first in Paul's letters, not because it chronologically comes first, but because it's the biggest. And so it gives us the, a, a full summary of Paul's ministry. Romans chapter 9. Paul is speaking of God's choice of his people. The choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 10, we, we, we are introduced to Rebekah and Isaac and their twins, Jacob and Esau. So this is Romans 9, verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's pr- purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul goes back to this summary statement in Malachi, which traces us all the way back to the book of Genesis when God chose Jacob instead of Esau. He he makes clear it's before the twins were born. It had nothing to do with their response or their inherent goodness. Because despite the beauty of of an infant, the beauty of Louisa as she was here before us for baptism, there, there is in each of us a sinner, a rebel against God. And so God didn't choose them because of their innocence, because they aren't innocent. We aren't innocent. God didn't choose them because God didn't choose Jacob because of something good or bad that he had done. What does he say in in Romans 9, 11? It was that in order that God's purpose in election might stand. It's so that God could show forth his power and his love that he chooses one. And he says, the older will serve the younger, a quote from Genesis 25. And then we have the confirmation in verse 13, just as it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
See, Paul is pushing the point that you are saved not because of anything good that you could do. It's, verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. It's merely because of God's mercy and love, because of God's choice. God's love depends upon his gracious mercy, his divine purposes. You are loved not because you are able to measure up. That would make God's love insecure. It would only be as reliable as you are good. If God loves you because you are lovable, then once you are not lovable, God's love can disappear. And yet if God loved you because of his purposes, not because of your works, then it stands secure. You are loved not because you are deserving. If that were the case, then your sin would forfeit God's love. You are loved because God is love. Because God decided and determined to rescue sinners. Because God's election is based on his choice. And so, these words are, yes, a word of condemnation to the people of Edom. Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. But they are words of comfort to the people of God. God sees sin and God responds. And even though I stand before God a sinner, I can hear him say to me, I have loved you. And the people of Malachi, of Malachi's time, will see this truth. That's the promise that God makes in verse 5, back in Malachi 1. That you will see it with your own eyes. You will, you will be able to, to affirm that what God says is true. That God will destroy the nation of Edom. That the land will be left only a wicked land. Now, if you wanted to book your trip to Edom today... It doesn't go by that name. It has disappeared from our maps. Other nations came and pushed them out and destroyed the people who were descendants of Esau. It's a confirmation of God's love in the protection of his people. They can shout, great is the Lord. But then they continue in verse 5, even beyond the borders of Israel. God is not stuck only working here. God can work everywhere. God isn't limited by a space or a border or a nationality because he is the Lord of all. Remember, that's the promise that was given to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the nations. And so it's an assurance of God's care and his expansion of, of his kingdom. And yet, still, even with the word of the Lord, even with his gracious announcement to his people. When we look around us, we, we are left to ask the same question. When we hear God say, I have loved you, we ask, how? How have you loved us? In what way, what does it look like? Well, we could turn again to the book of Romans to get a clear answer to what the love of God looks like. It's, it's bigger than the destruction of Edom. Because God hates not only those, not only the, the rebellion against his purposes, 
God hates your sin and mine. And so we could turn again to Romans to chapter 5. Paul, having made the argument that we are all sinners who cannot save ourselves, in Romans 5.8 he announces, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear that good news? God says, I have loved you. When? See, we think it's when I get myself cleaned up, when I, when I get my life in order, when everything seems okay. Then we, we feel like, God, I'm ready to hear it now. You can tell me I know I'm lovable. Except there are long days when we don't feel very lovable. There's sin that's been done to us that makes us doubt God's love and care for us. There's chaos in the world around us, and we wonder, what's going on? Isn't it supposed to be better than this? But, but hear the word of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God elected you in his sovereign purposes, not because of any goodness in you, but because of goodness in him. Not because you are deserving, but because Jesus Christ is the one who is deserving. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And so the prophet Malachi begins with the assurance of God's love. I have loved you. It's a reminder of his sovereign grace. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so when the call in the, in the coming oracles comes from God, that we must return to him, we must turn from sin, we must repent, it's rooted here in the foundation of God's love for us. And so we can say with the words of Scripture, we love because he first loved us. When I am tempted to despair, I have the assurance of God's love. When I am drawn to cynicism, wondering if this whole thing is even going to work, if Faith Church is going to make it, then I have the reminder of God's sovereign love. There is hope for his church because of his grace. There is hope for me as a pastor as a sinner, because of God's grace. When I know his love, when I hear that assurance, when I ask the question, but how have you loved us? And I hear his answer through Jesus, our Savior. When I know his love, then I am free to serve him. I'm unleashed to care for others. In Euless, Texas, a high school custodian has served for 25 years in his high school. But the reason for Charles Clark's longevity is not merely his commitment to cleaning, although he seems like a diligent janitor. It's his commitment to counseling. He works with the young men who he thinks might otherwise fall through the cracks. He'll pull them aside in the hallway for a word of instruction, a moment of correction. He'll sit with them in the cafeteria or in the, the, the quad. But it's not the overbearing snap of judgment. He offers them a patient word of hope. Most of the students that he works with are actually referred to him by the school's actual counselor. 
Because she says, he's better at connecting with them than I could ever be. One senior, a 17-year-old named Jesse, he describes Mr. Clark. I can tell him anything, and he'll give me his honest opinion. He's very wise. He's very loving. When asked why he has such an impact, Charles Clark explains. They have never had a man tell them that he loves them. And once they trust you and they know that you really do love them, you can get them to buy into anything. The official school counselor touts his success. Mr. Clark's young men graduate on time. They stay out of trouble and they head on to successful careers and further education. But he really believes that it's because they know he loves them. His love offers real hope. Dear children of God, when the world around you swirls in confusion, we hear the voice of God. I have loved you. When the church appears to totter in the winds of chaos, we hear the assurance of the Lord. I have loved you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy which is shown to us through Jesus, our Savior. A love that is undeserving, that is given to us only because of the work of Jesus Christ. That we hear those words that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would apply the truth of your word to our lives now. That we would put our trust in you. Where we are tempted to despair, that we would turn from our despair and find hope in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those that have come in without a knowledge, without a relationship with Jesus as our rescuer, Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to believe. And so we come in Jesus' name. Amen.